नमस्ते एवरीवन वेलकम टू द चार वक्त पॉडकास्ट दिस इज योर होस्ट कुशल मेहरा ऑल राइट माय गेस्ट टुडे शेफाली वैद्य एंड द टाइटल ऑफ टुडेस डिस्कशन इज गोवा फाइल शेफाली वेलकम थैंक यू सो मच इट्स अ प्लेजर टू बी हियर एंड आई हैव अ ग्रज विद यू यू नेवर कॉल मी बिफोर दिस is all right so so i i i apologize in advance for my 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 gustaki but uh, before we get into the discussion i just wanted to explain to everybody a little bit of a brief background as to why i decided to talk about this so last year i actually had gone on vacation to goa so when i had gone on vacation i i i there were two specific instances that happened with me where i was a for at first i were at it was a tourist thingy right so i'd gone to this place where it called it's called the cathedral and there is something on the opposite which is called the bomb jesus or something of that sort and then i had gone to the mangeshi temple for darshan now as i was going in both these places like in in the case when you enter the mangeshi temple right there is something on the right hand side which talks about the history of the place where it's very clearly written in marathi and in in english about how this temple stands against the attack from a certain you know invader and how they stood and they were the bulwark against proselytization and when i had gone to bomb jesus too i clearly remember the tour guide who was taking me around telling me yeah they came at this time x came at this time yeah they converted people sometimes by force sometimes by this and i was like okay this uh, this is interesting and i need to know more about this and now i'm not a student of history so in my case whenever i want to i just try to find people who know about it and then i obviously in my research i found out that shefali has been speaking a lot about it so and then shefali and i had met in delhi at the earth festival and and then we spoke and we discussed in detail and shefali was like yeah i in fact i've even made a presentation about the same so today it's obviously going to be a detailed presentation but shefali just a request to you uh I know you're pretty much known in most of the circles where we 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 basically uh, you know my content is consumed. But still, before I start start the slideshow, could you actually start by telling everybody a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, I am Shifali Vaidya. I am a Goan by origin, and uh, right now I am based in Pune. I am a writer, social media commentator, and I do a lot of writing on uh, temple architecture, on textiles, and history, particularly Goan history. and there is a context to it because i am not interested in goan history as a bystander or as a researcher it's but i am a stakeholder in this story because this is my story this is the story of my ancestors who had to move out of their ancestral village which was a place called verna where the original temple of malsa narayani used to stand now there is another temple a newer temple of malsa narayani there but the original temple used to be used to stand there and this temple was destroyed by the portuguese and at that point of time there was massive destruction massive proselytization and the people there were basically given the same choice that was the choice that was offered to the kashmiri hindus exact same choice huh? the same words either you convert to christianity or you you leave uh, goa or you leave the portuguese territories or you be prepared to die 
So basically, it's that same Raliv Galiv Chalib, the same choice that was given to the Kashmiri Hindus, the same choice was given to my ancestors as well. And whenever I talk about this, I am struck by the similarities about how the Hindus of Goa were basically facing the same kind of hatred, the same kind of persecution, the same kind of uh, assault on their faith, on their places of worship, and not much is known about it in the rest of Goa. You talked about going to Goa as a tourist. I know a lot of people who go to Goa. And when they go to Goa, they have this image in mind that Goa is a place of fun and penny, quote-unquote. So they mostly go to the beaches. Then they go to Old Goa. They see the churches there. And even in the tourist brochures, it is described as Goa is the Rome of the East and because there are churches. And then, you know, you have these uh, typical fifth grade essays which everybody writes about Goa is the land of communal harmony and everybody lives in peace. And then people go on that cruise uh, that the government of Goa organizes and there usually one of the songs that is played is this very famous song called it's a very peppy song that's being played a lot of people dance on it but nobody knows that that song actually hides a very sad past it is a cry of an anguished heart because what that song really means is that how Saiba Poltodi Vaita, I want to cross the river. And uh, the song is actually about a woman entreating the boatman to say that I want to go to the other side. Now, what is the context of the other side? The other side or the Otrolado is actually the side. So when the Portuguese came to Goa, they came from the sea. And at once they did not conquer what is today's Goa they conquered it district by district. So they first came to the island of Goapuri, which is now the city of Old Goa. Then they conquered the island of Diwadi. Then they conquered the districts of Bardes, Tiswadi and Salset, which are again the sea-facing districts of Goa. And after that, much, much after that, they started, uh, you know, becoming stronger and they started conquering more areas. So Goa, as you know today, the whole of Goa came under the Portuguese much, much later. The Portuguese arrived in Goa in 1510. But by the time they conquered over the whole of Goa, it took them almost 200 years. So that is why you see so much of demographic change in, in different parts of Goa. So... Uh, Talking about the other side, when they first came and they conquered the island of Goa and they conquered uh, Diwadi and uh, Tiswadi, the areas which were on between the sea and the Mandovi river and the Zuari river were controlled by the Portuguese. And on the other side of both these rivers, that were areas which were either still controlled by Adil, Adil Shah or they were controlled by the Sondekar Desais, who were the Hindu uh, feudatories at that point of time. So the people who were forced to convert, the people who were forced to change their religion, they actually were so unhappy that they wanted to cross the river. And some people who were lucky had actually crossed the river and they had gone to the other side. So this is the cry of an anguished person who was a Naso Krista, meaning who was a new convert, who is basically entreating the boatman saying that I want to go to the other side. I want to go and Damula Logna Koita. Damu is Damodar, who is uh, the god who had a temple in Madgaon. 
so i want to go and pray to lord damodar so oh boatman please take me to the other side and then uh, she the woman in the song she tells the boatman that i'll give you my necklace i'll give you my earrings i'll give you my bangles i'll give you all the jewelry i have but please take me there it's a very poignant it's a very sad song but today everybody dances to it the song was taken over in bobby and nobody knows the context to it again very few people in uh, india forget about some people in goa as well don't know that goa was the first indian uh, region to be colonized and it was the last to be liberated so the portuguese came to goa in 1510 and goa was liberated in 1961 that was much much later after india was free in 1947 so while the british ruled over india for a much 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 lesser time the portuguese ruled over goa for 450 years and 450 years is an awful lot of time to colonize a, a region and if you see anywhere i am a student of world history as well and if you see everywhere where the catholic nations like spain and portugal have colonized people like spain has colonized many countries in south america and portugal has colonized many countries this side of the world you will see that in south america uh, portugal colonized brazil and spain colonized uh, peru mexico everybody there and if you visit those countries i visited peru a couple of years ago and i found that when i was reading their history it just took 52 years for the spanish to destroy an entire civilization of the incas and to convert an entire nation to christianity basically erasing their uh, culture and turning it into a museum exhibit but goa which was a much smaller place even today has a hindu majority how did this happen why did people hold on to their dharma so staunchly why did they make so many sacrifices and still not give up on their culture on their way of life on their faith on their gods is a story that is very very fascinating and very few people know about it i know about it because it is my story and also because i grew up in a village called kumkolan which is one of the most uh, how would i say militant villages of goa militant in the good sense people of goa or those who know about the geography and the the social uh, social status of goa they know that people of kumkolim are very difficult to rule over they have an independent mind and they don't take things lying down they always fight against the injustice that is the history of my village and my village was the first village which rose against the portuguese in 1583 and mind you this was a revolt of the people of the village it didn't have a king it didn't have a knight leading it it didn't have an army leading it it was basically the common people of the village who basically said that we will not let the portuguese come and destroy our temples so they uh, they they did a armed revolt against it but that story will come in my presentation but this is to give you the context so i have heard about this story of the veller of uh, my village people from the time i think i could uh, listen to stories and we have a festival in kumkolim it's a very famous festival in goa it's called satryo it happens on rangapanchami so the story is a very fascinating story our village had a shantadurga temple kumkalli 
there was a main big Shantadurga temple. That temple was destroyed by the Portuguese, but the chieftains, the warriors of the village, they basically smuggled the murti out. They took the murti out safely and they shifted it to a forest, then forest, which was about 10 kilometers away from Kungulip. And they built a makeshift temple there and they established a goddess there. Even today, there's a huge temple there. The temple is known as the temple of Shantadurga Kunkalikarin, meaning Shantadurga of Kunkulim. And every day, every year, once a year on Rangapanchami day, there is a procession of the Devi who comes in a palanquin all the way from that place, the new uh, place called Fatorpa to Kunkulim, where the original temple used to be. And they take the same route that the chieftains had taken while shifting the goddess there. So it's a way of remembrance. It's a way of remembering the valor of the chieftains. And here is the remarkable thing. So uh, my village was a Kshatriya village, which was inhabited by 12 different clans. So all the 12 clans basically fought against the Portuguese and they paid a heavy price for it. The whole village was burned to ground and there was an attack from the sea and there was an attack from the land as well. And many of them got converted. And today, out of those clans, there are some clans where there are no Hindus left. Everybody in that clan has got converted. But... On this particular day, when the Rangapanchami festival happens, when the Sutra festival happens, Sutra literally means umbrellas in English. So all the 12 clans have their 12 ceremonial umbrellas. That is why the festival is called uh, Sutra. And those 12 umbrellas are also brought to Kunkulim in a procession. And the people today who are practicing Christians, who but who know that their ancestors uh, were the kshatriyas of the 12 uh, 12 clans they participate in the festival as well as people uh, who have a who have a role to play not just as onlookers but they actually participate in the procession there's a certain protocol there's a certain order so i grew up in a village like that and uh, shri aka priyorkar who has written the book goa inquisition was actually related to me so I read that book when I was 10 years old. And this is not some, uh, some how would I say, some unrelatable story for me. This is a part of my history in my house, in our puja room, in my ancestral home in Kunkulim. In our puja room, even today, there is a small box that consists of mud. And that mud belongs to our original ancestral village of Verna. So when my ancestor, whoever he was, he shifted from Verna or he was rather forced to migrate to Kunkolim because at that point of time, Kunkolim was still under Hindu rulers. The only thing he probably carried with him was probably uh, images of the gods and goddesses from the family home and this little bit of mud that is still today is there in our uh, home temple. It is... You know, when I when I when I look at that, I, I I feel like that is a connect I have with that village. Today, that village houses a big, huge industrial estate. But when I go there, when I see the temple that exists today in the middle of the industrial estate, I actually get goose pimples because this is the story of my ancestors. This is the story of my people. This is the story of every Govan. It doesn't matter today if you're a practicing Hindu or a practicing Christian. If you are a Govan, your life has been impacted by what happened in the 16th and 17th century. That is a fact. 
that is a well known documented fact and everybody in goa knows about it so that is the reason why i started to talk about goan history because it's a topic that's very close to my heart and because i wanted everybody to know the truth this was one of the most poignant stories of persecution one of the saddest stories of mass exodus one of the saddest stories of genocide and complete destruction of local faith culture music language everything but nobody wants to talk about it it is the inconvenient truth that everybody wants to uh basically push it under the carpet so this was the reason why i started to talk about it can we now move to the presentation and let's sure. do something to ask no, me sure so, so right um, yeah. yeah so, so as i I'm... explained yeah. yeah so as i explained my presentation is titled i want to cross the river which is a literal translation of the song that i just talked about a little time ago about how saiba poltodi vaita it is the angst of a person who wants to go back to the faith of his or her ancestors so goa inquisition is a term that people have heard roughly somewhere so what was goa inquisition goa inquisition was actually a portuguese legal institution it was a court it was established by a papal decree it was established in 1560 and it was abolished in 1820 so there was this much time more than a century more than 150 years of institutionalized torture of goans it was uh, removed in between for a brief while when marquis de pombal who was a secular guy who was the prime minister in portugal but once he was deposed then it was reestablished and do you know who wanted the inquisition to be established in goa you would be surprised do you want to know uh mm, sure tell tell me okay it was francis xavier the person whose body you saw in the church of bon jesus the so legend himself a, yes so he was a jesuit missionary who came to goa and who converted a lot of people and then when he when he saw that the people he had converted they kept lapsing back into the ways of their ancestors they were conducting pujas in secret they were singing the songs of their ancestors they were wearing the clothes like you know they were used to wearing they were wearing a bindi they were wearing flowers and all of that that is when he wrote to the king of portugal saying that the court of inquisition must be established in goa and this is his letter which he has signed it is documented it is i am not making up this fact it is there in the letters of francis xavier it is published it's on the internet you can find it yourself it is true that the court of inquisition was actually established after his death but nobody can say that Francis Xavier had got nothing to do with the court of inquisition in Goa next please so um, now i've talked about where, what it was like when the portuguese came to goa so what was goa like before the portuguese came to goa so goa was ruled by a series of different dynasties and it was always a part of a little bit of karnataka i mean boundaries were fluid then so a little bit of karnataka was a part of that region apranta region sometimes a little bit of maharashtra was a part of that region so that whole coastal region was very contiguous and it was ruled by different dynasties 
and third fourth century the bhoja dynasty ruled fourth fifth century it came under the mauryas then it came under the chalukyas of badami then it came under the shilaharas then it came under the kadambas who actually had their capital in goa in a place called chandrapur and under the kadambas goa really thrived and some of the temples that they built still exist in goa the pre portuguese temples next it came under the vijayanagar rule then it came under the bahmanis and finally it came under the portuguese so when the portuguese came to goa in 1510 goa as we know today was actually ruled by the bahmani kingdom by the adilshahi kingdom by one of their feudatories called adil khan and hindus were persecuted so badly at that point of time that uh, they wanted some kind of respite and they wanted some kind of escape from this islamic rulers of bahmani sultanate so some of the hindus of the region they approached a guy called timoja who was at that point of time at the court of the king of honavar and they said that you know we are being persecuted can you not do something can you please uh, you know come with your forces and liberate us or whatever so he felt that he didn't have enough uh, enough enough manpower or enough strength to do this on his own by the time the portuguese had already reached kochi and vasco da gama had already reached india and alphonse de albuquerque had come with his armada with his uh, armed ships to the west coast of india so timoja actually went to meet uh, albuquerque next slide please and he requested the help of alphonse de albuquerque and timoja's army supported albuquerque and they said that you attack from the sea we attack from the land and we basically cornered the adil adil khan uh, adil khan's forces and uh, together we can you know uh, conquer this region what he thought was that these white people have come from so far so why would they stay here they will probably accept some gifts and some tributes and some financial they will want some financial trade rights but basically they'll go back and they will leave timoja in charge of goa at least that's what he thought and boy was that a miscalculation next please so timoja offered albuquerque monetary tributes but albuquerque refused to leave because he had a papal mandate portugal had a papal mandate basically to proselytize and to turn the heathen east far east into catholicism so he refused to leave and he established a colony on the isla de goa which is basically today's old goa and albuquerque encouraged his soldiers and when mind you when they when they won over the isle of goa they basically slaughtered uh, all the men all the male children and only the widows and the daughters were left and he organ he actually encouraged his soldiers to get married to the widows of the soldiers that he had killed of the adil khan soldiers that he had killed and create a race which quote unquote was indian in looks but portuguese in spirit and finally timoja was banished from the from the land and then uh, the portuguese basically became the de facto rulers of isle, isle of goa so what were the early attempts to convert as i said portugal british came to india basically just to trade initially east india company was not interested in interfering with the culture the faith and the traditions of the local people they just were interested in maximizing their economic returns but portugal was not like that portugal was a very fanatically 
Catholic country and they had a papal decree, they had a papal mandate to basically proselytize the heathens, quote unquote, of she, uh, Shefali, could you could you yeah. explain what a papal decree or what a papal is basically so that yeah, you know yeah, listeners yeah. can get yeah. aware about that too? Okay. So basically the Catholic Church, the Vatican, the Pope had issued a decree which uh, essentially split the world into the East and the West and Spain and Portuguese Portugal were the biggest Catholic empires of the time and they were very fanatically uh, Catholic. So they were told, Spain was told to basically go to the West and colonize uh, South America and Portugal was told to go East and colonize all the countries, all the Buddhist, Hindu, whatever countries of the East. And they were told that not only it is their right to convert the people of these regions, but it is their sacred duty. They have to do it in order to, you know, go to heaven or whatever, earn merit for uh, basically harvest the souls of the heathens. So Albuquerque initially promised a policy of religious tolerance, but conversions had already started in his lifetime, but the speed was slow. The first church was established in Goa in 1534, as early as that. And by 1548, number of churches in Divar and Goapuri, which is basically the island of uh, uh, Divadi and uh, the Isle of Goa, had increased to 14. So between 1534 to 1548, from one, the number of churches had become 14. There was a systematic persecution of Hindus started in 1540 thanks to two Christian fanatical clergymen called Miguel Vaz and Diego Borba. In 1541, the Portuguese king announced the policy of rigor de misericordia, rigor of mercy. What it means is that Christ's grace is the mercy. But since you cannot uh, just convert the people just like that, you have to do it with force. You have to do it with rigor. So that force is ultimately leading you to Christ mercy. It is, it, it is kind of like that. Next, please. So uh, Pope Nicholas V had issued a papal decree, as I said, giving Portugal not just the right, but the responsibility of propagating Christianity in Asia. Not just in India, in Macau, in Japan, in all the places that Portugal tried to colonize. In 1546, the Portuguese king issued an order to destroy Hindu temples and prohibit public celebration of Hindu festivals on the island of Divar and in the city of Old Goa. In 1548, Bishop Albuquerque wrote to the king that he hoped, quote unquote, within one year or at the latest two, we shall make this whole island Christian. So, the conversion industry began in full flow. By 1549, all temples on the island of Divar and in Goapuri, which is uh, old Goa, and uh, there is another place called Vallegoy, they were all of them, they were destroyed, and temple properties were attached to churches built by raising the temples down. And in many cases, the stones that were used to build the temple were basically used to build the churches. Even today, if you go to the place called Divar, you will find one tank, which was part of the temple complex then. That is the only part of the temple that is still existing. It's a very sad, very... Um, very particularly if you go at sundown it's a it's a very depressing place actually in 1560 and i'm quoting antonio norona who was a portuguese historian here 
There existed one church in Salset. In less than 50 years, 28 parishes were established. Rapid conversions took place, some by fear of physical force, some from moral cowardice, some maybe because they couldn't overcome the love of the country of their birth, some with their eyes on a lucrative job, but almost none from conviction. This is a Portuguese historian talking about how the conversion industry was going on in Goa. So let's come to the destruction of temples. St. Paul's College, which was a seminary, was established in Diva to encourage and impart religious education to neo-converts. But the speed of conversion was still slow. So Miguel Vaz and Diego Borba made a 41-point plan and they traveled to Portugal to personally present it to the king. And some of the points were destruction of existing temples, ban on building new temples, ban on carving murtis, ban on celebrating Hindu festivals, and changes in inheritance laws for neo-converts. Now, mind you, in those days, architecture in Goa was such that temples were built with laterite stones, but the roofs were uh, by, they were usually thatched roofs and they had a lot of woodwork. So every two, three years, the temples had to be renovated. You had to change the roof, you have to change the hay. So what this law basically did was it either destroyed all the temples, there was a ban on building new temples, and there was a ban on renovating old temples also. So temples basically just fell into disrepair and they were destroyed very quickly. So the original temple of Mangesh was at Kortalim. You went to Mangeshi, which is the current location. The original uh -huh. temple was in a place in a village in Salset on the banks of the Zuari River called Kortalim. Today, the church of Kortalim stands there at the exact location. It was destroyed around 1566. The Murti was moved across the river, that is where the across the river phase comes, to Antruzmal. And between 1560 to 1575, around 300 temples were destroyed in Salsit alone. Now, Salsit is just a small taluka of Goa. It's not the whole of Goa. Salsit is the taluka in which my village falls, Kunkolim falls. So in one year, 300 temples were destroyed. Can you imagine the distress of the people? Can you imagine their reaction? Can you imagine what must have gone into their minds, into their hearts, the kind of terror they must have faced? So wherever possible, Hindus managed to transport the main murti, deity, worshipped in the temple to the mainland across the river, which was not under Portuguese control then. The Saundekar Desais were the Hindu kings who ruled Antruz Mahal then. Antruz Mahal is the area around Ponda. And they gave land to the temples. So this is why most of the very famous Goan temples today, like the Shantadurga of Kaule, like the Mahalsa Temple of Mardol, like the Mangeshi Temple, are all located, the Narsima Temple of Veling, are all located about five, six kilometers from each other. They were not there originally. They all belong to different villages in Salset, in Diwadi, in Tiswadi, but they all uh, were given new places here. So. But the Portuguese didn't stop at just converting the people or destroying their temples. They wanted to basically create a whole new social order that had nothing to do with the original culture of the people. So there was a systematic repression of local culture and language. So anti-Hindu laws made life hell for Hindus living in Portuguese territories. In 1560, the Viceroy ordered all Hindus from Portuguese territories to either convert or leave, giving them a month to dispose of their properties. If they still stayed, they would be killed. 
1620, an edict was passed forbidding Hindu marriages in Portuguese territory. So if two Hindus wanted to get married, they could not have a religious ceremony. They would have to cross the river and go to the other side and get married. They couldn't find a priest who could officiate in the Hindu ceremony. Wait, wait what? Cremation. They actually couldn't get married inside yes. their own territory. Yes, yes. It gets worse. Then they banned cremations. So when the Hindus of uh, Goa and Tiswadi and the areas under the Portuguese, when they died, they couldn't cremate their dead in their village. They had to take the dead bodies in the middle of the night, put them on rafts, set the raft sailing in the middle of the river and set fire to the raft. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine the the pain the relatives must have faced that they cannot even do the last rites of their loved ones? And this was this was institutionalized. This was a law. This was not just you know people uh, doing individual acts of repression. This was a proper law that forced people, every Hindu, to cremate their dead in the middle of the river. Hindus were forbidden to wear the sacred thread. A tax was levied on Hindus known as the Shendi tax for the shikha for the uh, for the Shendi that Hindus kept of all castes basically. That is a that is a kind of Catholic jizya only you know. That you pay the tax just to have that right of uh, carrying that uh, tuft of your hair at the back of your head. In 1684, Konkani, which was the local language, was banned in seminaries because they felt that if you spoke in Konkani, you were connected to your culture, to your roots, to your faith. So they banned uh, Konkani and they made Portuguese compulsory in the seminaries. Konkani and Marathi books were burnt in public and schools could only teach in Portuguese. So this was basically done so that you change the whole younger generation to uh, basically colonized minds, denationalized minds, who have no contact with their lang with the language of their ancestors, the religion of their ancestors, with anything basically. So how the people retaliated is also very interesting. So people like in my village, they wanted their children to have at least the basic knowledge of Marathi and Konkani. So what they did was they secretly got teachers from Maharashtra and they started private schools in their homes, in the temples, where there was no government support, but the local people basically paid the teacher and they made sure that the children got at least first to fourth education in Marathi. That happened in my village as well. Local dress was banned. So wearing a sari, wearing a dhoti, wearing a kashti were banned. Cultural practices like wearing flowers in the hair were banned. Pork was forcibly fed to the Christian converts. Beef was forcibly fed to the Christian converts. Hindus were forbidden to keep and read their own religious books. And I'm talking about non-converted Hindus, okay? Christians who were forcibly converted were obviously forbidden from even keeping a Hindu book. But even Hindus who were living in Portuguese territories were forcibly forbidden to read their own Hindu books. Fire and steel, dungeon and the rack, the rice pot and the rupee had all played their part in the conversions. This is Richard Burton, the famous British traveler. So how did they convert? Basically, they used both the stick and the carrot. So the stick was that Hindus were persecuted in many ways. Hindus were prohibited from holding public office. So no matter how highly educated you were, you couldn't get a government job if you remained a Hindu. You had to convert to Christianity. Grama Sabhas, which was, it was a very democratic system, mind you, at that time. 
where all the decisions of the village like how much land to be cultivated whether to take two crops a year or whether to take one crop a year water management what kind of crops to be cultivated were communally taken by the gram sabha the entire village got together and every house had a representative and they basically voted on what kind of crops they have to take all the decisions related to the village were taken by the gram sabha communally it was not individually owned and these gram sabhas could not be held in villages until christian gaukas were present what that meant was if a village had 80 members of the gram sabha and if one member had converted to christianity the gram sabha could not be held if the 79 hindu members were present but that one christian member was not present and the gram sabha could be held if that one christian member was present and no hindu members were present so the christian member basically had the upper hand and he could basically dictate on what decisions to take in 1669 the king issued an order that all orphans from hindu families would be taken away from their relatives and baptized educated and indoctrinated as christians by the church now here by orphans they meant children whose both the parents were dead but in reality any child was forcibly taken and put in seminaries and the child would be converted and the parents and the extended family and the grandparents would have no say in this and many times what this happened is that if the father is dead and the child is taken away and forcibly put into the seminaries the mother invariably converted because she didn't want to stay away from the children so this was emotional atyachar of the worst possible sort Hindus were prohibited from riding on horses or palanquins no matter how highly educated or highly respected they were Christian laborers were prohibited from working for Hindus Hindus were prohibited from teaching their children about their own religion all children younger than 15 were forced to attend Christian preaching organized in public places Hindus were constantly humiliated and emasculated and entire communities were converted by deceit either by throwing beef in community wells or by force feeding force feeding them bread now uh, remember hindu parents could not teach their children about their own religion in their own homes but the children were forced to attend christian preachings in public places so if you are told not to teach your own children about your own faith but they are getting public instruction in some other faith obviously they would be brainwashed from early age and they would be more inclined to be christians now comes the carrot so what do you get when you convert it you got a lot of stuff So Christian converts were given a lot of concessions. They paid lesser taxes. They received government jobs, and a converted son would get all his father's property, even if his other siblings had not converted. Which what this means is that if a man had four sons and only one of them converted, then if the father died, his entire property went to the converted son, and nothing went to the Hindu sons, the sons who remained Hindu. So this basically broke apart families. widows and daughters of a hindu man would inherit property if they become christian if a wife of a hindu converted and the husband refused she would inherit half his property even if they lived separately so this was a systematic attempt to break the family system so this is when the exodus of uh, goan hindus started happening it is estimated that around 20000 hindu families migrated from portuguese territories after 1560 in the first wave of migrations now how did they migrate in those days there were no uh, no vehicles of mass transport so they either took boats 
and went by the river and the sea and they landed up on the Karnataka coast in all the villages near Mangalore. And even today, Mangalore is a sizable Konkani speaking population because of this very reason. Or they walked by foot like my ancestors did from the villages in Salset to the areas which were at that point of time not controlled by the Portuguese. But imagine this was at a time when land was considered to be the biggest thing you could own. Land was your identity. Your land tied you to kinship. Your land tied you to the village. Your land tied you to your culture. So to leave that land just to hold on to their dharma, what kind of strength, what kind of belief it must have taken. And the people who actually sailed in the boats, I cannot even, I don't even have, uh, I have words to describe their sufferings. Because in those days, it was not like you had a cell phone and you know, and you could call your mom and say, okay, I'm just taking this speedboat and I'm going to Mangalore. It was a journey that took days, sometimes even months. And where they went, they went all the way to Kochi, they went to Mangalore. And where they landed, they did not know the local language because in Karnataka, the local language is Kannada. In uh, Kerala, the local language was Malayalam. And these people could only speak Konkani. But they landed there. Sometimes they wouldn't even given uh, a place to land by the locals there because the locals were scared of Portuguese reprisals. So they were given like a little bit of, you know, refugee colony type status near the riverside or near the village Mashan. And they stayed there. They didn't complain. They were a very enterprising community. They started work there. They learned the local language and never once did they cry victim. They started new lives. And today that entire coastline is prosperous because this is one of the most enterprising community of people. This is our friend Xavier. I'm, I'm directly quoting him, his opinions about Hindus. He says the Hindus are an unholy race. They're liars and cheats. Their idols are black, as black as black can be. And he says many more things, which if you search for complete works of Xavier, you'll find it. It's not me saying it, it's Xavier saying it. So the court of inquisition we come to now. So Francis Xavier, as I said earlier, he wrote to the King Don Juan III in, in sorry, not in 1945, in 1545, asking him to establish the Court of Inquisition. The Court of Inquisition was established in 1560. It had two inquisitors appointed directly by the Pope. And here is the thing, they were answerable only to the Pope and the King of Portugal. So there was the secular authority in Goa, which was the Governor General. These inquisitors, they could bypass the governor general. The governor general had no control over them. So they were answerable. Anything they did, any excesses, you had to either go to the Pope or you had to go to the King of Portugal. So what did this court of inquisition do? It met in Adil Khan's palace, which was the viceregal lodge earlier. There's a typo there. It is located in today's old Goa between the Say Cathedral, the cathedral that you saw, and there is another church called St. Catherine's Church. There is a big open ground there. And if you look carefully, you will see that there are some laterite stones lying around there. This was the place where the Palace of Inquisitions was there. And later on, when there was a lot of furor in Europe against uh, Inquisition, when the Court of Inquisition was finally abolished, the Portuguese themselves demolished the palace because they did not want any proof. Now, that palace was called as Hodlegar or Big House in Terror by the Goans. And so terrified were ordinary Goans of being hauled up to that place that they could not even call it Court of Inquisitions. They called it Hodlegar and they would whisper the name, literally. Such was the terror. 
so the uh, the court of inquisition was established mainly to punish neo converts to christianity who continued to practice many of their old customs and traditions but the jurisdiction of the court also extended to hindus muslims jews buddhists anybody basically next please it's up no i can see only the first one next please oh, okay uh, sorry so yeah 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 so an edict published by the court of inquisition lists offenses by neo christians liable for trial the list was hugely comprehensive and included things like distribution of betel nuts and leaves during weddings you know hindu weddings give that vida basically betel nut leaves and betel nut that's a very important ceremony so you could not give it in christian weddings finding a tulasi plant anywhere on your property not necessarily in a tulasi madam even if the plant grew wild in your property and your neighbor complained you could be hauled up to the court of inquisition and subjected to torture singing traditional songs or ovio during a wedding meeting the oldest person daiji of a clan to seek his blessings after the birth of a child this was a important kinship rituals for the goans of that era to keep the clan united so every time a child was born in the extended clan on the 6th or 7th day the child would be taken to the daiji to the eldest person in the clan and that person would bless the child so they made this whole ritual redundant and they made it illegal so the bonds within the community were breaking using traditional musical instruments like taal like dholak everything that hindus used to sing anointing a bride or bridegroom with haldi before a wedding so as it happens when you force people to give up a ritual that is culturally very important to you people find ways and means around it so they basically banned the haldi ceremony so what the neo christians did was they start another ritual called rose which meant the bride was anointed and the groom was anointed with coconut milk and even today in catholic goan catholic weddings one day before the wedding the bride still has this ritual called rose where instead of haldi she is anointed by coconut uh, milk celebrating the sixth day ceremony after the birth of a child cooking rice without salt you know why because hindus were used to eating their rice without salt so they made that illegal for neo christians they wanted to them to cut their ties completely with their past life this sounds so like north korea so yes it does it does so they forced people to add salt to their rice and even today in salset largely the christians of today still put salt in their rice because it's become an ingrained habit for 300 350 years they made bathing in the morning illegal can you believe it the only reason was hindus bathed in the morning and pretty much hindus all over india one of the first things to do in the morning is to take a bath so they made it a legal offense and you could be hauled to the court of inquisition <laughs> so, so the, if the, your neighbor solution, complained and said ki ye subah mein nahi raha so the solution was tum nahate ho i will make sure you stink <laughs> <laughs> no no you could take a bath but you have to take a bath in the evening not in the morning so even now again in in salset particularly in the coastal areas the christians still by and large prefer to take a bath in the evening while the hindus take a bath in the morning you would think that this wouldn't matter right but this was a way of telling the neo christians that you have to change everything they changed vocabulary also so you could not call your parents uh, baba and ai which the hindus used to call you had to call your parents mai and bai which was the portuguese way of calling 
they forced their dress on them everything everything was changed using cow dung to polish the floor of the house was illegal observing fast on certain days of the week was illegal next please and now we come to the to the horrible horrible torture so what happened if you didn't follow these rules if you found a tulsi plant in your garden what happened then then somebody complained against you and the portuguese would come and they would just drag you to the court of inquisition you didn't have the right to appeal it was not like today you know ki your human rights lawyer would file a pil and file a hbs corpus petition in the portuguese court and get a bail or nothing like that you wouldn't even meet anyone once you're gone you're gone your family had no way of finding out whether you're alive whether you're dead whether somebody has taken you somewhere nothing once a person is taken by the court of inquisition the person is gone it's like as you say north korea or china basically next please so uh, any uh, another thing any person could report anyone anonymously to the court of inquisition so kushal if you were rude to me once 5 years ago at some family wedding and i don't like you anymore i could just anonymously tip the court of inquisition and say that kushal has converted but he still wears dhoti at home or he still puts uh, eats rice without salt or he takes a bath in the morning and this the is court like of inquisition pakistan it's worse than that it's really worse than that jo so hinduon ke sath aaj pakistan mein hota hai yahi to hota hai ha ye ye isse bhi ha right that that is true so the police could come at any point of time and they would just take you and the witnesses were neither requested required to provide proof or accost or accused so you wouldn't even know who basically complained against you so what it caused was this whole uh, mahol of distrust you don't know what, who would basically uh, complain against you it could be your nephew it could be your friend it could be your neighbor it could be anybody you know you had a fight with someone and the witness and the accused would never come face to face so you would not know and the minute the court of inquisition took people in custody that very day their entire property would be confiscated no rights your family wouldn't get anything and half of that property would go to the person who basically testified against you and torture was used by the court of inquisition to extract confessions what kind of tortures we'll see horrible tortures like fall or the tortures of the pulley where the victim would be suspended mid air with his legs stretched on both sides and weights attached and the weights would be increased so that your limbs could be spread and spread and spread till you couldn't bear it anymore and you would be ready to confess to anything essentially next please torture of potro involved placing the victim on a slanted bed with the head lower than the body and iron band around the throat kept the head in space place and the hands and feet would be tied and iron prongs would force the mouth open and then water would be poured into the person's mouth and nose continuously so that the person would choke and struggle and uh, in and this would happen at over extended periods of time and just, that is basically you would you would confess to anything they had something yeah, this, called a breast breaker which was a iron implement which was yeah which was used on women to basically pluck out their breasts from their body it was ah, that yeah and the final torture if these tortures were not enough was something called the auto da fe that the lyrically trial uh, called trial of faith where people deemed heretics were burnt alive at the stake at a place at a public place called campo santo lazaro on the banks of the river in today's old goa and how do we know this 
luckily we have two contemporary accounts one of a guy called francois pirard and one by a guy called charles delon who were both french uh, people charles delon was a french physician who was imprisoned for 3 years at the palace of the inquisition he has written a first person account and later on he was released and he went to paris and he wrote a book and he published it in france and that book fortunately gives us a contemporary account of what exactly happened during an auto da fe because he personally witnessed one so did francois perard so what happened at the auto da fe so the victims to be tried were given yellow robes called sambenitos with a cross of saint andrew painted in red in front and behind and you can see the picture that is the procession going with like you know full ceremonial glory victims who were convicted were given robes called samarras which had their own portraits painted on both sides in ascending flames surrounded by demons basically saying that you guys are heathens and you are going to hell next please so this is how the person who was burning at stake would look he would wear that conical hat and he would wear those robes where his portrait would be painted and there would be flames so victims who confessed after sentencing had the flames on their robes pointing downwards called fogo revolto such victims were shown mercy do you know what mercy meant they were first strangled and then burnt oh, so small spared... small mercies how nice <laughs> so they were spared the pain of being burnt alive and they basically had to just you know go through the minor inconvenience of being strangled but people who refused to repent they were burnt alive and such victims were carochas which were those huge conical hats with pictures of demons and fire next please auto da fe unrepentant victims would be tried to this pillar called hatkatro khambo which still exists in goa today by the way barely it's crouched under one big big ass flyover and uh, very few people know the history behind it but the victims would be tied to it and they would be burnt alive and inquisition had power over both the living and the dead so people who were tortured and who died auto da fe were held once in 6 months or once in a year so in that interim period people who were at the at the inquisition house and if they had died of tortures their bones would be interred and the if they were, the bones were tried and if the bones were found guilty of uh, heresy then the bones were burnt you know and uh, not only that the inquisition had the power to censor and confiscate books so all books written in sanskrit and marathi were seized by the inquisitors and they were also burnt at an auto da fe so it was the burning alive of the people as well as the burning alive of knowledge there is no accurate information about how many people were tried by the court of inquisition in its entire duration of 250 years but data is available for a period of 63 years between 1561 and 1624 and in this period 16712 cases were tried in 1820 the court of inquisition was abolished following pressure from the british and the palace was demolished and almost all the records were burnt next please so now a lot of people when i talk about this they say that okay while all this was happening what were the hindus of goa doing why were they not resisting why were they not fighting back but again this is a story that's never been told there was always hindu resistance there was pa- passive resistance and there was active resistance active resistance was like the resistance in my village where the people of the village actually came together and they led an armed struggle against the portuguese and the jesuit missionaries but there was passive resistance also where people actually in the wake of great threats and great uh, what you what, what, what great dangers to their life they 
held on to their dharma and they moved their gods and goddesses out of the portuguese territories and this is not like you know like today where you can just hire a big ass uh, tractor and a trailer and you can put all your murtis there put flowers and take it for uh, miles together no these were heavy murtis which were physically had to be carried in palanquins they had to be offered and they were living murtis so they had to be offered their morning evening and night pujas along the way and they had to be taken like 35 40 50 60 kilometers and this journey would take 4 5 days because certain protocols had to be followed but people still did that there were armed rebellions in villages like kortalim and kunkulim against the portuguese missionaries many hindus chose to migrate to the other side leaving all their wealth and property behind rather than convert they took their gods with them and they built new temples that continued to be the link between people and their villages and that was a huge service even today the kongani community which is settled outside of goa their family deities still remain in goa and at least once a year they come to goa that is one great way of keeping the link with your ancestral land alive keeping the link with your heritage alive keeping the link with your ancestors faith alive in actively protecting and controlling the key religious orders key religious uh, figures by transporting the deities to new temples the hindus directly contested the portuguese control of their everyday culture this is by a person who has talked about the armed resistance of the hindus and hindus continuously fought against hindus and even goans there was a there was there was a rebellion called the pinto rebellion which was basically started by the priests uh from the neo convert christian community who had chosen to take priestly careers but they found that they could not rise beyond a certain point because they were they were brown and they were always treated as second class citizens by the white clergy so they basically rebelled against the portuguese that is known as the pinto rebellion the ranes of satri rebelled almost 40 times at different point in the in the 450 years so it's not true that there was no no resistance even today every temple in goa has a list of mahajans and kulavis the inhabitants of the original villages who are now scattered all over the country but they know which temple they belong to next please so this brings me to the end of this this main uh, presentation about what really happened in goa and why goa's culture is the way it is why do you see so many churches in the coastal areas and why do you see so many temples concentrated in a small area around ponda the reason is this so the goa inquisition was a terrible crime against the people of goa committed in the name of christ with the full knowledge and active support of the catholic church many church orders like the jesuits who were actually the worst uh perpetrators of torture and proselytization in goa the vatican has apologized for its sins it has apologized recently most recently to the native indians of canada they have apologized to the native indians they, the native americans of america they have apologized to the jews they have apologized to the rwandans but not once has the pope apologized to the indians and the kind of horrors that were unleashed on them by the full authority of the of the church so why talk about the goa inquisition this is just a flippant question you know often people ask me that why are you not talking about today's uh, topics like price rise or why goa doesn't have a decent taxi app why talk about the inquisition now and many goans ask me that my point is it's only when you learn from the past that you can build a happy and safe future 
what happened to my ancestors in the 16th century is not that it is not happening anywhere else it happened to the kashmiri hindus the exact same choice it has happened in khargone yes 3 days ago where the hindus are basically selling their land and they're saying that we want to go out of this place because we don't feel safe here it happened in kairana it happened in many areas in kerala so there are a million of these little things happening everywhere in india today and if we don't learn from the our past if we don't learn lessons about what happened why it happened we will never be able to fight it if it happens again in the future so history repeats itself but the inquisition this is another question i keep getting asked you know ki the inquisition basically punished neo christians you are not a neo christian you are not a christian you are a hindu why are you talking about the inquisition the whole point is the inquisition tortured the neo christians why because the neo christians were happy with their new religion no because they wanted to go back to being hindus that is the only reason why the inquisition court of inquisition tortured them and therefore it is my right as it is the right of anyone else it is my story my family had to uproot itself and today who i am is a result of the choice made by my ancestor then if that person had chosen to convert i wouldn't be shefali vaidya i wouldn't be a govan hindu woman today i wouldn't be speaking about this i wouldn't even be born so i owe it to my ancestor i owe it to my story and i need to own my story don't i that is the reason why i'm talking about this as george santana's uh, very famous quote says the stories who do not remember the past are condemned to repeat and i'll tell you something else i'll end with something else so my father had a friend from kunkulam he was actually a catholic priest okay but he was a gaukar too he was the descendant of the kshatriyas who actually fought against the portuguese in my village and he wrote a book called kunkole a mahan gaon meaning kunkolim a great village in that village he spoke in detail about this fight of 1583 and he always acknowledged he always acknowledged that he his ancestors were hindu and they were forcibly converted and he always paid the respects to shantadurga kunkalikarin even though he was a practicing catholic priest history doesn't go away just because you ignore it your roots your stories don't go away your pain doesn't go away because you ignore it you have to talk about it i am not saying that all the churches of today have to be demolished and temples have to be rebuilt i am saying there has to be a museum of goan inquisition the new generations need to know what really happened most of the hindu temples today as you saw and as you spoke about it carry a plaque almost every single hindu temple has that which talks about what was the original location of the temple how it was shifted to the current location under what circumstances it was shifted to the current location it is there in every temple but in the churches where the temples used to be i am not saying that demolish the churches but there has to be some accountability there has to be a historical plaque which basically says near the korkalim church that the original temple of mangesh existed here because it's a fact and it is not it is not somebody's opinion all these are documented facts you know which is why it's very important to understand history if you want to know the truth if you want to know what it is like if you go to goa i request all of you who are listening to this podcast to go to a place where the original shantadurga temple stood 
it is on the route on the road from verna to 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 uh, raya to bori and it's a sad place it's it's a big open place where now they have built a very small structure where there is a photograph of shantadurga there is a very old very ancient banyan tree which is probably ex- been existed there for 400 450 years probably the tree was still there when the temple was demolished there and there are some stones some laterite old stones covered with moss and if you go there in the evening which i made the mistake of going there i could actually imagine myself hearing voices hearing cries and there is a small uh, uh, water body there which also probably belonged to the original temple it's a very somber place and when you sit there you realize the sacrifice that my ancestors not just my ancestors and ancestors of every goan have made to hold on to their dharma to hold on to their culture to hold on to their stories thank you all right so uh, before i start asking the questions i'm going to leave the references page up over here so because that was going to be my first question but it's good that shefali has left all the references of her claims that she has made in this presentation so what you see on the screen right now now i know some of you are going to be listening to the audio version yaar uska koi solution mere paas hai nahi now uh, it is what it is but the references are there uh, this is uh, there are 3 4 5 6 7 8 9 10 11 references that she has mentioned you can go and check them out um and you can read them now i'm going to take uh, the presentation of shefali now uh, i'm going to go straight to the you know audience questions uh, we already have quite a few questions uh, that have been asked uh, i'm going to try to paraphrase them because sometimes uh, you know uh, they're very long winded and they come kind of all over the place so this one is like namaste shefali ji could you tell us about the damodar temple at zambolim it's z a m b a u l i m I've heard it used to be in Madgaon, where a church stands today. I don't know about this, yes. so I could, this is a direct question. Yes, yes, it uh, was in Madgaon. There is a church near the Hospicia Hospital, where the original temple of Sri Damodar used to stand. And uh, during the time uh, when Salset was attacked and all the Salset temples were destroyed, this temple was shifted to Zambauli, which was at that point of time not under Portuguese rule. Zambauli comes under the areas which are known as the Neo Conquistas or Neo Kabizadis, which were conquered by the Portuguese later. And that is why many of the Madgaonkers, even today, when they have their Zambauli Gulal, the big festival, most of the people who go to Zambauli are actually the Hindus from Madgaon. All right. So, somebody has asked, "Was the term crypto Hindus used during the Goa Inquisition? Because that's how they kept their kept their faith alive." <laughs> I don't know if the term was used or not, but yes, they were crypto Hindus, and many of those customs actually still survive. You know, like for example, the tribals who got converted to Christianity, they were used to keep doing a bindi tattooed between their eyebrows. and there was so much of resistance to that and they wanted to keep it that the church finally allowed them to tattoo cross between their eyebrows in even today now the younger generation doesn't do it but if you find very old uh, gauda tribals women you will find that the cross is tattooed between their forehead it is basically the the bindi that the tribals used to used to tattoo 
All right. So this is a very good question. Uh, in fact, I'm going to take the name of the person who's asked this. This is asked by Vinita Godbole. So she has asked, please ask Shefali ji, during her research, did she come across something similar happened to the Kokan region also? A lot of Konkan Brahmins migrated out of the region about 300 to 500 years ago. The only thing that ties them to the land is the Kuladevata Devi, Devi temples in Konkan. What has been your experience, Shefali? Have you come across any material? Um, I haven't come across any material about this specific thing. A lot of Goan uh, Konkanis actually migrated both to Karnataka as well as to Maharashtra, to Konkan region. Even though even today you'll find many of the the people who have their uh, ancestral gods and goddesses in Goa, but they live in around Malvern, Sindhudurg or whatever. But this specific questions, I, I actually don't have an answer. All right, cool. So I don't know if this is a question or a comment. Somebody just has made a comment. I'm just reading it out for you. So many Goans okay. don't know about this. They only glamorize the Portuguese history or the occupancy. Uh, Shefali, ma'am, please talk about Tam. Tambri Surla, I guess that's how we pronounce them. T A M B D I S U R L A. Can you explain yes. that to people? Tambri Surla is the only original stone temple, pre Portuguese era temple, which was uh, uh, built in the style of Hemadpanti stroke Chalukyan architecture a little bit that still exists in Goa. It exists because it stands at the base of the Western Ghats. And even today, it is not easy to go to that place. It's pretty remote. It's in a forest. There's a beautiful stream next to it. It is a Shiva temple. And that temple is a good example uh, for you to see and to imagine what the architecture of that time would have been like. There's another temple in Khandepar, which is like that, which is uh, it's a laterite temple, actually, Shiva temple, again, on the banks of the river, which you can visit and you can see for yourself what the pre-Portuguese era architecture was. Right now, all the temples you see in Goa currently, like be it Mardol, be it Mangeshi, they have something called as a hybrid architecture, which was basically because they were built somewhere in the 17th or 18th century. So they have a different architecture from the temple architecture of, say, Maharashtra or Karnataka. All right. So this one is, again, a comment, then a question. So someone has said, we learned that the islands of Mumbai were given to the English king by Portugal as dowry. What yes. was Eng England's view on the Inquisition? England? was the country which basically that put the maximum pressure on Portugal later on when finally in the 19th century when the court of inquisition was is there was abolished so at least they did something right uh, yeah. that's good to hear so okay this is uh, uh, does British rule feel like a walk in the park uh, or uh, were they better off or worse off in your view I guess that was the question. See, British basically exploited India economically. They basically bled India dry. So there is no, no merit in the British rule. If, under the British rule, India fell from being one of the richest countries to one of the poorest countries in the world. So uh, I, I have no reasons to glorify British rule. But the British did not uh, violently attack or uh, destroy the local traditions and faiths. They also tried to proselytize and they also supported missionaries later on. But they were not as brutal and as brutally violent as the Portuguese. That is true. 
यू नो द आयरनी ऑफ दिस इज एंड आई एम नॉट सेइंग यू आर रॉन्ग हियर बट मतलब हालत हिंदुओं की ये है कि उनको डिस्कशन ये करना पड़ता है उनकी किसने कम ठोकी है दैट्स द लिटरल डिस्कशन हियर कि हां इसने हमें कम मारा इट इज यू नो इट इज व्हाट इज सो आई डोंट नो दिस इज a contemporary question does portugal offer its citizenship to only goan christians or to all no, goans no 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 all goans everybody who was born before 1961 they or their descendants can actually claim portuguese citizenship of course more goan christians have availed of this offer than goan hindus but anybody can all right so okay this one is is there any similarity in the christianization of kerala and goa and what and why are the outcomes so different a uh, similarity of christianization of kerala actually i haven't uh, studied it much but i hear that it was more with coercion than with force so that is why they managed to keep many of their original cultural practices still alive whereas the goan christian had to change everything from dress to names to language to food to songs to everything basically all right again this is more about the economic situation of goa this one is asking my question is about the current times electronics manufacturing cluster upcoming in pernem also about mopa airport nearby will this help goa economically <laughs> not a part of this discussion yeah that's why i just read it out i don't know why they asked it but i just okay now this person accuses you oh my god so let me i uh, read the question this is an accusation on you so hitler and stalin both had one thing in common they both made the majority feel endangered germans and poor working class why are you trying to go on the same path shefali I wish I was that powerful. I am quite flattered, actually, that they think I have such unlimited power as Hitler and Stalin. All I am trying to do is to talk about the truth and just the pure, unadulterated truth. Who I am doesn't matter. Everything that I have said in the presentation is true, and I can back it up with contemporary proofs. I can back it up with research. Everything I have said is factual. So. my motive or why i am doing it i am doing it because somebody has to speak the truth you know i'll tell you one thing my daughter was helping me this presentation and when she i helped i asked her to research something for me so she googled goa inquisition and the first thing that they found was ak priyolkar's book on goa inquisition which is even today by the way the most uh, comprehensive resource on goa inquisition and then directly it was shefali vaidya so my daughter is asking me in all these years that the portuguese have been in goa only two people have talked about goa inquisition mr ak priyankar and after that in recent years you so the point question this person is asked should be asking is that why haven't more people spoken about it and mind you people have spoken about it pb kunna has written a whole treatise on the denationalization of goans where he talks in great details about the terrible things that the portuguese did with goans and how it basically totally uh, uh, colored the goan christians minds and how it turned them into denationalized deracinated zombies okay so this is uh, i guess it's a similar question but i'll still read it out the british always exploited resentment among people why didn't they do anything in goa like they did against the french while it was going on 
that I don't know. I'm sure there were geopolitical considerations in Europe that were also at play here. There were many European powers which were basically jockeying. And at that point of time, Britain, I think, was just so insular and they were busy sucking the rest of India dry. So Goa was too small for them probably to interfere. What would have actually changed the fate of Goans was if either Shivaji Maharaj or Sambhaji Maharaj had succeeded in driving the Portuguese out of Goa. They both tried and they both came this close, particularly Sambhaji Maharaj. There's a story that when Sambhaji Maharaj had almost reached Fonda and he was about to conquer Goa, the Viceroy then actually went to the church of Bon Jesus and put his staff into the casket of Xavier and said, save us. And then uh, from the other side, there was a Mughal attack on the Maratha forces. So Shivaji, uh, Sambhaji Maharaj had to retreat and that's how Goa was saved. And he intended to come back, but he had a very short lifespan. He was captured by the Portuguese, and, uh, by, the, by Aurangzeb and tortured and killed. So that never happened. So that was a very touch and go. Interestingly, in 1961, when the Indian army was in Goa, liberating Goa, then also the Viceroy did the same thing. He went to the church and put his staff in the silver casket, thinking that, okay, some miracle would happen. And, uh, you know, miraculously, the Indian army would retreat or something like that. Fortunately, that didn't happen. So just something came into my mind. Like we are in Maharashtra. So we know the history of Maharashtra, how Shivaji Maharaj, you know, fought Aurangzeb and, and the Mughals basically. So in Goa, is the history textbook of Goa, like school basically what I'm trying to say is like the Goa education board or something like that. Do they actually know about the, the horrors of the Inquisition? Are they taught, are the kids taught that? Kids are not taught that. And that is the saddest part. There is, in geography, there is mention of the neo-conquestas, the old conquestas. And in history, in Goan history, there's a very brief mention about how the Portuguese came to Goa. They colonized Goa. They left after 450 years, after giving us beautiful houses in Fardenas and after giving giving us chicken rishat. But you can study Goan history, but for that, you have to basically take history at your graduation level. You have to do your post-graduation in Goan history. Then you take a paper on Goan history and then you study what happened in detail. So in Goa University, you'll find a lot of papers for MA level which talk about this subject in great detail. But the ordinary uh, primary or secondary school going child knows just the bare rudiments. He knows, he or she knows that Goa was colonized by the Portuguese. But there is far greater stress given on how Goa is a land of fun and penny, how it is a beautiful land of communal harmony and all of that, you know, the standard narrative spiel, you may want to call it. Okay, so so I guess I'll ask you this last question because I wanted to keep this as my last question before we wrap up today's chat. So, you know, there is a lot of chat about truth and reconciliation you know we need hmm. truth and reconciliation truth and reconciliation hmm. so what is the level um of uh, i think there's pretty much decent harmony in goa in terms of society at at the local level i don't That's i don't right. see that, that that level of uh animosity in goa between the communities from what i've understood so do you think uh uh, you know, um, do you think the truth and reconciliation has happened there or it needs to happen? Truth 
most almost every govan knows and even if you don't want to acknowledge it publicly they know that they were hindus before even today's practicing christians and under what circumstances they were converted some families even know what were their pre conversion last names they know who were their family deities before they were converted and many uh, christian practicing christian families even today when they have weddings or any auspicious occasion in their family they will go to their village their ancestral village and they will offer a coconut so in that sense yes there is reconciliation to some extent but it is uh, now because of the changed atmosphere and more polarization there is also a lot of denial and that denial is something that scares me because it is not you cannot change history you cannot go back in time and correct things you have to live with the situation as it is but there has to be acceptance there has to be forgiveness that comes after acceptance and there has to be you know you have to come face to face with the truth and there has to be accountability when has the catholic church apologized to goa when will it apologize to goa it destroyed an entire culture it destroyed close to 700 temples there has to be accountability and when the current pope has been going around the world apologizing to everybody why is goa left out why is india left out i agree with you i think that that is a very valid question that needs to be asked and and you know this is all part of the the the, the trend in india where i don't know how to say it there is a negationism of the record of invaders in india let's i just don't know how to say this other than that i that's just negationism it's denialism and and every time i see this you know every time we try to have a historical it is almost as if you're going to take it out on the people today but based on what are you saying that if yeah so you know the kashmir files phenomenon is actually a perfect example of that i so even in my chat with vivek i i did mention this you know i told vivek i was like unki sadi kyun hai tumhe pata hai bolta hai kyun main wala unki sadi iske liye hai कि दे थॉट राइट्स होंगे पिक्चर के बाद और हुए नहीं तो उनकी सड़ इसके लिए गई है कि यार ये तो कुछ हुआ ही नहीं सो इन अ वे कश्मीर फाइल्स बिकेम लाइक अ लार्जर ग्रीवेंस रिड्रेसल मैकेनिज्म वेर हिंदूज फेल्ट कि हाँ हमारी किसी ने आवाज सुन ली किसी ने बोल दिया और हमारी मूवी बंद नहीं हुई काइंड ऑफ अनेरियो आई थिंक दैट्स वेर the society is i don't know what it is but you know what i'm going to do shefali i'm going to leave you today with the last words so what is your you know parting message now for everyone see personally i want a museum of inquisition to be established in goa so that the future generation would know exactly what happened in the land of their ancestors i'm doing it for my children i'm doing it for my children's children so that they should know what happened it is their story as i said i am not an academic researcher i am not a third person who is doing this you know to get a book published or to get fame or whatever i am doing it because this matters to me because this is my story this is the story of every goan today whether you want to accept it or not i just want truth and i just want accountability fair enough you know guys once again look so if you want to know more about the references that uh, shefali had shared look i'll request i guess i'll request shefali to either you know 
ट्वीट इट आउट आई गेस शेफाली रेफरेंसेस को एक इमेज बना के जस्ट ट्वीट इट आउट और एंड व्हाट आई विल डू इज वंस शेफाली ट्वीट्स इट आउट इन द इन द डिस्क्रिप्शन ऑफ द पॉडकास्ट इटसेल्फ आई विल लिंक दैट ट्वीट ऑफ द यू नो रेफरेंसेस दैट शेफाली हैज मेंशनड एट द एंड ऑफ द पीपीटी सो दैट एनीबॉडी यू नो आई नो द द व्यूअरशिप ऑफ द चारवक पॉडकास्ट हैज अ सिग्निफिकेंट नर्ड एलिमेंट हु वुड लाइक टू रीड अ लॉट so this will be for all you nerds because before you irritate me with the emails ki references do references to main maine outsource kar diya shefali ko ye kaam so <laughs> so main maine wo kaam kar diya hai but so we'll uh, you know we'll wrap up uh, today's discussion but uh, shefali this was a brilliant presentation and you know i know you you've gone through a lot of pain so thanks a lot for coming and uh, doing this and i hope to have many such more uh, discussions with you in the future Thank you so much, Kushal, for calling me. It was a pleasure, and I really, really enjoyed doing this. All right, guys, we'll wrap today's discussion up once again. If you like what I'm doing on the Charvak podcast, please subscribe to the channel, like this video, leave the comments over here. Also, go and follow Shefali on Twitter or on Facebook, wherever, whichever platform you use. Please go and do that. The All Twitter, the details are. Twitter handle is at Shefwaidya. Yeah, so all the description, uh, whether it's going to be on Spotify or iTunes, wherever you guys go, or on YouTube, is going to have all the details in the description, so you can go and check them out, and support the podcast. You can do it through YouTube or on Patreon or buying the merch or your UPI donations. I'm going to try and bring as many interesting discussions across to you guys. So we we'll end the discussion today. As always, namaste. Take care. Bye bye.